Hello and welcome to Beyond Boundaries podcast. My name is Justin Douglas. So thankful you could join me for this episode. If you want to learn more about me or find the show notes for this episode, you can go to pastorjustindouglas.com. You can interact there with feedback, comments, and questions, or you can reach out via Instagram. I'm at Pastor Justin Douglas. Also, please consider subscribing, rating, reviewing, and sharing. It really does make a difference. On this episode of Beyond Boundaries, I am joined by Johnny Rashid. Johnny and I discuss his new book, Jesus Takes a Side, Embracing the Political Demands of the Gospel. Johnny gets into preacher mode a few times on this podcast, and I love it. I think you're going to love it too. I think he makes many compelling points about what it looks like to follow Jesus in such a polarized political climate and what it means to stand up and say, Jesus took a side on this. He took the side of the marginalized. How do we do the same? Uh, So I I really think it's a great conversation. So much of what uh, I feel the church needs to hear right now is in this book and in this conversation. All right, enough of me. Uh, Let's get into it. Here it is, my conversation with Johnny Rashid. Well, welcome. I'm here with Johnny Rashid, pastor, blogger, author, sports fan. Uh, how are you holding up after last night? The, uh, that, that was crazy. Oh, I feel very good after last night. Jo- <laughs> yeah. Joel Embiid just <laughs> threw the dagger right in Toronto. Unbelievable. I mean, it, it was, was so yeah. thrilling, you know, and, and, and it was a great moment for us in Philadelphia because in 2019, when Kawhi we thought we were, we thought we won the game, but then Kawhi had this crazy shot that hit the rim like three different times and went in and just like broke our hearts. But it feels really good yeah. to have Joel Embiid do that. It's very exciting. Yeah, it was, it was a, that, that Kawhi shot was wild. My, my, my seven-year-old son's favorite player is Kawhi Leonard mm-hmm. and my 10-year-old son's favorite player is Giannis. Um, and, uh, and so he's a huge, he was a huge Raptors fan at the time, my youngest. And uh, that shot was crazy. That shot was nuts. But the, the, the shot last night was pretty nuts too, against the shot clock and everything. Like the turnaround like, on it, yeah. he just touched it and nailed it. I mean, yeah. Yeah. So if you don't know what we're talking about, they're up 3 0 on the, on the Raptors. So very likely going to be moving on. Uh, a much I think better we're moving team. on Saturday. I think yeah. that's what we're doing. Yep. A much better team. I think, I think they've got a little experience now. That trade, I think, helped him out. We'll see. I think it's good. We'll James Harden. So, yeah. We'll stop talking about sports, though. You also have a new book out, or it's not out yet, but it's coming out. Uh, Jesus Takes a Side, Embracing the Political Demands of the Gospel. It comes out May 31st, 2022. Tell me a little bit about um, the book, why you wrote it, and what you think it's, uh, what your hopes are for what it might do. So, in a word, the book is encouraging Christians to engage politically, especially those who feel political conviction, but don't know how to act on it. Um, I think for a long time, the politics that's dominated white evangelicalism, but I think Christianity in general, white Christianity in general has been far right politics. And so people engaged politically for a long time with the religious right, the moral majority and so on. And when People who grew up in that tradition, grew up in that experience, noticed the hypocrisy, noticed the racism, noticed the problems, the hostility towards the poor, the hostility towards the earth. And they thought this doesn't line up with Jesus's teachings. 
what it often moved them to do is to, to become apolitical because they didn't want to engage in politics like Pat Robertson and Jerry Falwell. Mm -hmm. For those people that are turned off by the religious right and right-wing politics, the answer isn't to become apolitical, but rather to see what the politics of the gospel are and then act them out in real life in practical ways. Mm -hmm. So this book is for people who are convicted to act against oppression, but are anxious or uncomfortable or hesitant to make political commitments. Mm. So it is a book that's actually encouraging political commitments because Jesus took a side. Jesus had those same commitments. Um, so that's in, in, a, in, 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 that's the blurb. That's the premise of the book. I like book. that. No, I like that. That's a good, that's a good elevator uh, speech. Cause I do think a lot of people, myself included, were raised with this understanding that like politics and the church are separate, like this, like emphasis on that. But then at the same time, um, I went to Liberty University, like mm -hmm. Jerry Falwell, like um, the moral majority was incredibly political and in their dealings. And then even in bringing that into the pulpit and into the church space, not just as like a separate thing happening over here that Christian leaders were leading, but that it was incredibly influenced by the power and authority that they held in those spaces. And I do see that kind of inverse of like, when you leave something like that, there's this feeling of like, well, I just don't want to become the inverse of that on the other side, right? Like, I don't want this to just be like, but I think what you're saying is let's examine, let's go back to a Jesus-centered way of seeing some of these difficult political realities in our world today, which honestly, in the last two years, it's only gotten more difficult, like with um, COVID and everything, making things even more, uh, making something that in a lot of ways is a health crisis, a public health crisis making it incredibly political, becoming, you know, questionable on like, are we leading with compassion here? Or are we leading with our own like desires for uh, maybe freedom? Like you could go all, on and sure. on with, with sure. all the different ways that we've, we've um, had to engage some of these deeper questions uh, with like, you know, at the basis of the gospel, we have love your neighbor as yourself, like this, this call to like love one another in, in, in a self-sacrificial way, our politics don't often do that. Um, or at least in the church circles I grew up in, my politics didn't often compel me to lead with love, but more with a desire of some amount of control or power or um, I guess just placement. Now, you and I both are from like an Anabaptist tradition. That's right. So one of the things that drew me to Anabaptism <laughs> And you critique this, which I think is kind of great, is the idea of a third way. The idea of like Jesus makes a third way. He doesn't choose a side in some of these situations or where there are clear black and white different sides. He might come in and say, uh, you know, well, whose face is on the coin? Render to Caesar what Caesar. He doesn't really. There's this real big debate at the time of like, should we pay taxes? Should we not pay taxes as as like almost a revolt against should we not pay taxes? Should we pay like. There are times where Jesus might have had a third third way, but tell me a little bit about what you think that third way theology has done to maybe even render us ineffective at justice. Well, I'll say it like this. <clears throat> Walter Wink had a good idea for the third way as far as like fight and flight. We're doing something different than that. Third way idea has some value, you know, but it is expressed. Where is it expressed most clearly in American history during the civil rights movement? Nonviolent resistance resistance against 
white supremacy in a nonviolent way, right? We're not taking up arms, we're doing something differently. But in the current political economy, that kind of nonviolent resistance is not seen as a third way. Anabaptists don't see Black Lives Matter, which is, which is also nonviolent resistance. They don't see protests for against police brutality as nonviolent resistance as a third way. They see it as woke. They see it as critical race theory. They don't see it actually as the alternative that it is. Mm. So because this movement for freedom and justice and for black lives isn't seen as a third way, people try to find a third way between Black Lives Matter and white supremacy between people who want to kill black people and black people themselves. And there is no third way there. So the idea is the, the, mm-hmm. the, the, the conception has some merit. I don't think it's very biblical. It is a uh, political, but it has been it has been um, diluted to mean very little like we see. And what, what happens is we see how polarized the United States is. Mm-hmm. And because we don't want to contribute to that polarity, that polarization, we, d- we think the best option is to go down the middle. Mm. But we need to ask questions like what polarizes us? What polarizes us into these camps? And when we realize that it's not actual um, issues of politics and policy specifically, but actually embodied politics, like matters like sexuality, matters like race, mm-hmm. gender, people's bodies, all of a sudden, these issues are not up for debate. We're talking about human dignity versus prejudice against that dignity. People who, who want to find a moderate path between two poles don't understand that the politics is embodied. So white men specifically see politics as an abstraction because it doesn't impact their body very much, that they can just see it as a discussion point or something that we don't talk about in polite circles. We don't talk about it at dinner parties. We don't talk about it as church because why should we let the way that we vote and the way that we engage politically get between friends? For me, the way that I vote and the way that I engage politically is a matter of my body and my humanity. I can't separate it from that. So Mm. the privilege that white folks have to do that, and it isn't actually removing their politics from their body. It's just ignoring that their bodies are political. Mm. That's the difference. Your body has political meaning. There is political, like like you noted the pandemic and, and you said, how did a public health crisis become political? Well, everything in this political economy is political. So what we should do is find the politics of it and then mm-hmm. engage it accordingly. So the issue with the third way, when it's about human dignity versus prejudice against that dignity is that there isn't a tenable third way. And I think we saw this specifically for a lot of people, I think we saw the, the problems with third way politics during the Trump administration. Yeah. I think that was the moment where it was most clearly, most flagrantly obvious. And, and you could argue you could argue even Trump tried to use third way ideology, even when he said there's good people on both sides. Like it wasn't that during the um, right during the uh, Nazi protest that was happening. And you're just sitting here like. These are literal Nazis. There's no good people on both sides of this. But like there was this way of like when you say that you it comes across to people as disarming in some ways. I don't know. At least that's the way I took it as like almost a masterful like, oh, that's a great way to not. That's a great way to sidestep this whole conversation because you look like you're taking like the middle 
Like you're not critiquing either side here. I don't know. Exactly. And that, that would be the most clear case, you know, and that, that I, this actually didn't end up in the book, but I think I'll publish this chapter on my blog. So I'll link that later. But, um, when he said very fine people on both sides, that was an example of the frailty and the weakness of third way of the third way thinking, because you're talking about white supremacists and then you're talking about their, their actual victims. And there isn't a third way, you know? Um, And I don't think that I see in the, I see Jesus in the text often taking the side and, and, and who does he take a side of? He takes a side of the oppressed. He takes a side of the lowly. And so if you are lowly and oppressed, allow your oppression to inform your politics. And if you are not lowly and oppressed, oppressed, make relationships and connect with people that are and allow them to inform your politics. I don't talk much about the pandemic in the book, Mm -hmm. but I recently wrote something about how the question about whether to wear masks again, which is a controversy Mm -hmm. that's happening right now after a federal judge just struck down the mask mandate in public transit. Mm -hmm. What should inform our conversation about that in our churches, in our organizations is the most vulnerable. Yeah, the lowliest, the disabled, the immunocompromised. When you look at the Bible, you see Jesus elevating those people. Mm-hmm. You see him saying, "What you do to the least of these, you did to me." You know, mm-hmm. when did yeah, we see you sure. immunocompromised and not wear a mask? Jesus might ask you. That's yeah. the, that's, that's that's what would happen in Matthew twenty-five, right? Yeah. And if you cause one of these little ones to stumble, if you cause one of these lowly people to stumble, it's better for. Mm. Um, a millstone to be hung around your neck and you, you to be thrown into the sea of Galilee than the judgment that awaits you. So Jesus does not mince words when it comes to causing the lowly to stumble and to fall. His highest critique is for the religious leaders. And even using your example, when he says, render under Caesar what is Caesar's, Jesus is making a strong political statement against the hypocrisy yep. of the Jewish leadership there. It's not, he's not finding a third way between their hypocrisy and his position. No, he's saying, no, follow me, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I do think I, I, I wouldn't say, I wouldn't call that a third way, but I would say like, he didn't fall into the trap of like the predictable two sides that existed of that day that they were each trying to figure out which side is Jesus on of this. He kind of was like, well, I'm not really part of this whole system that you guys are a part of, but I also think what's different. And this is what I struggle with when I get in these kind of conversations with people is Jesus was also in a very different system. Jesus didn't have a vote. Like Jesus didn't get a vote for Caesar every, like who's, who's going to be this person. Jesus didn't have, um, rights or, uh, you know, the ability to leverage his power to, um, to enter into a conversation at his city hall and say, Hey, this is problematic and it's hurting people. Um, so like the idea that Jesus never did it, well, I would say Jesus did it in some ways in countercultural ways, protest ways, but at the same time, like we have a system that we can use to benefit the oppressed to, mm-hmm. to, to work for, um, justice in our world within that system. And that system is often flawed. Don't get me wrong. Like it's often flawed, but like if we refuse to work within that system because we think it's the Jesus thing to do because Jesus 
but Jesus wasn't in the same system. Does, does that make sense? Do you, have you thought about that at all? It's like the reality that like some of the things that parallel first century to 21st century, like these are different systems that we're a part of. And so like, yeah, there wouldn't be a one for one of Jesus doing it that way because Jesus wasn't part of a democracy. Does that make so, sense? Yeah, there isn't, there isn't a direct comparison, but Jesus's ministry and Jesus's life is explicitly political. Yeah. Jesus is Lord is a political statement, right? Yeah. The Lordship of Jesus is a political statement. We just celebrated Palm Sunday, the inauguration of the kingdom of God. That is very political. You yeah. know, the Pharisees in Luke, Luke's the only gospel that mentions the Pharisees in Palm Sunday. And he says, Hey, cool your disciples down. Mm-hmm. That's what, that's what the Pharisees say. Why do the Pharisees say that? Because Jesus is causing too much of a political ruckus and the Roman authorities are going to find out. It's like when a black mother tells her black son, hey, here's how you talk to police mm-hmm. so you don't get killed. Jesus does not follow the decorum that week and he gets executed at the end of the week because of the political action that he took. You know, Rome charges him with sedition. That's, that's how he dies. So the, the, the gospel has an explicit political... Um, has a specific political ethic. And that's right. And Christians follow that. They follow that ethic. And then they engage, they should engage practically politically. It's not because our political economy or our political system will save us. It's that given the conviction that God gives us to advocate for the oppressed, we have practical ways to do that in our society now. And it is our responsibility to engage that way. That doesn't mean that we're... Um, allowing any political office to supersede the political office of Jesus is Lord. Yeah. But we're engaging practically. So in my book, I have two chapters that discuss this, the importance of engaging practically, but the importance of also engaging prophetically. Mm. So engage practically with what you can, but then imagine the limitations of the political system and find out how we can engage more radically, how we can both engage practically, but also imagine prophetically. Mm. How do we have a prophetic imagination? Our political economy and our political spectrum limits our political imaginations. So Christians benefit from engaging in the system with our kingdom imaginations and then participating in it as practically as we can. So to me, you can do both. You can still um, imagine beyond the political reality, but also know the importance of engaging politically, practically. No, that's good because when I first came into Anabaptism, like, cause I, I obviously grew up, well, I grew up in a kind of a, as a denominational mutt, I was all over the place. My parents were, and then, um, I guess going to Liberty, a Baptist, you know, Southern Baptist college, um, the, when I engaged in Anabaptism, I found it incredibly liberating in a lot of ways. But one of the things that always stuck with me was like how much of what I read in the Anabaptist uh, readings was like that apolitical, like we don't we don't even vote like that right. kind of like we're not we're going to disengage from culture. We're not going to vote. And and I always thought that's a really privileged position to have to where you don't even have to vote or or the world is set up in such a way to where you can literally disengage from even voting and you're probably not going to be that affected by it. And you wonder like we're Anabaptist, largely a minority group. um, If that would have been the way in which they would have operated, because I would say the more I've engaged in politics and understood politics and just the realities of this past 
systems of power within our day to say you're just going to completely disengage from voting from a from a like theological or ethical standpoint is really challenging when you, people are getting into power that are affecting your day-to-day life so it's almost as if like I, I don't know if you've, I don't know if you've thought much about this and I'm sure, you know, it's, it's mentioned in the book coming from the Anabaptist perspective, but like, it's a privilege to disengage absolutely from the politics, right? Like it's a, you're in a privileged position and you're probably not going to have a president really, or, or even a local leader affect your life that much. If you don't really exactly like, does that, does that make sense? Yeah. As a rule, if you don't participate as a rule, if you're a political quietist, I think there are serious privileges that come with that. I will say this. I think that it is just as problematic to have a rule to never vote as it is to have a rule that compels everyone to vote. So I talk about voting in the book and mm. I say we need voting is worth the, the amount of time it takes to do. Yeah. You know, and we want to actually minimize that time and make voting as accessible as possible. It's really important that we um, engage to franchise as many people as we can. And, and make this democracy work as well as it can. Yeah. Um, but I don't think voting is sacred in this, but I also think that not voting, not voting isn't sacred either. Like in yeah. both cases, we're elevating this political action too much. So I, I write, <clears throat> it was only a few weeks in the democratic primary and this kind of dates the book, but c'est la vie. Um, <laughs> when Bloomberg ran, and he had all this money and bought all these YouTube ads and was getting popular. Um, I said, I'm not going to vote for Bloomberg against Trump. I'm not going to vote for one billionaire oligarch against another. It doesn't matter. I'm not into the vote blue, no matter who, you know, Mm. if you want my vote as a leader, it is your job to convince me to vote. I am not compelled to vote for you because I feel responsible for what you do. So like, I'm not engaging in that political system where I feel obligated to vote because it's the civic duty that I have. I don't engage in civil religion that way. Mm. I don't need to vote. Yeah. For the same reason that I don't need to not vote. They both work together. So I'm going to practice discernment each time. Sometimes not voting is the most powerful thing you can do. And sometimes voting is, but if you're going to make a rule about it, you're missing the point. Political action should be discerned. There are people that don't deserve your votes. When you say you couldn't get a leader in office to get me to vote against the most race, most most explicitly racist president we've had in 100 years, Mm -hmm. you couldn't get a leader in office to compel me to do that. Well, that's your fault. That's not my fault. That's not the problem of the populace or the citizenry. It's the problem of the leadership. So there's pressure for me because I'm I'm just going to be honest with you. I don't need to be shy about this. I voted in every election twice a year, every year. And I've Mm -hmm. always voted for the Democratic candidate. Mm -hmm. So if the DNC wants my vote, they have to convince me that who they have is worth it. I'm not just going to try to vote to get someone out. I want to vote for someone, too. Now, Bloomberg wasn't that person. And thankfully, I didn't have to vote for him. Yeah, I I wasn't given that choice. But the actions and behavior of Donald Trump compelled me to vote, constrained me to vote for the first time in a way that I felt like I needed to. Yeah. Before, you know, when we were talking about like Mitt Romney and Barack Obama, for example, you know, they're very similar. 
politicians in many ways. You know, mm-hmm. Romney's a little bit more conservative. Barack is a little bit more progressive. They're both moderates. Romney cares essentially, Obamacare is essentially Romney care, but on the national level, in fact, you know, mm-hmm. so, so two pretty moderate people, you know, at the end of the day, voting for one of them, I think that it, it was, in my opinion, voting for the first black president was important, but existentially speaking, those, that election had a lot less weighing on it than the election of Trump, right? That mm-hmm. really changed the course of the country. Hate crimes went up. Hostility towards immigrants went up. Hostility towards women. We normalized certain language. And it really did disrupt us. The amount of white lash and hatred that's come back. And now we're seeing because we let this fester and grow, because we didn't challenge it, because the media didn't challenge it, because we normalized it, because we both sided it, because we didn't take a side. Now we're in a place where people's livelihoods are on the line, not because of politics, but because of political rhetoric. Right. There's more hostility towards queer people now, more hostility towards black people now and BIPOC people because of the rhetoric that we got that got normalized under Trump because we failed to take a side. We failed to say this is manifestly evil and it has no place in our political discourse when we allowed it to because we lacked the courage to say that it can't. We lacked the courage in our churches to say, no, we can't take communion when one of you thinks the other person is worth less than. Go reconcile before you do that. There's no place for you at the table if that's Mm -hmm. what you're doing. You know, Mm -hmm. Brian Zahn got real popular. He he had a tweet go viral because he said, at my church, we have political pluralism. And so I have ICE agents and I have undocumented immigrants. It is not tenable to have both of those in the same community if the ICE official is, if the ICE officer is not repenting of the fact that he's employed by an evil institution that dehumanizes immigrants. Mm. We're following Jesus. We're all taking off the things that we need to. We're all shedding our political power in order to follow Jesus. Some of us don't need to shed it as much because we have less. Mm. So we're all invited to the table of God. We're all invited to the table of Jesus. But if you're too preoccupied with your power and your your political power on your own, you can't engage. That's why Jesus finds himself with lowly people. He finds himself with people that are self-emptied, that are available to him, right? In the the parable of the great banquet, who comes to the table? The people that are available, the people on the streets, the poor. Those are the people that come to sit at Jesus's table because people that are too concerned with their marriages, their money, their power, their nuclear family, they can't engage. They can't make the time to do it. And so political pluralism as an idea in our church isn't tenable because it, it uh, falls on the back of the oppressed. You know, I, mm. I anticipate people saying this book is divisive and it's going to divide churches. I'm telling you, our churches are divided right now because we fail to take a side of the oppressed. That's, that's, what, that's where the division comes from. Mm. Johnny, you're preaching sermons here. That was awesome. I'm about to just let you keep going. Uh, wow. Um, I, I, you know, you would have caught me three, four years ago. I probably would have come back at you with maybe some other, oh, come on. It's not that, you know, big of a deal, but I do think I have, well, let's just call it what it is. The Trump presidency has deeply challenged my, um, let let me say it this way. At one point I was the pastor of the bridge and, um, and we had people pulling into the parking lot with um, Trump stickers and Hillary stickers. <laughs> like we had, we had both 
uh, groups represented in our community. And there was even times where I was like, I would see people talking to each other before church at the coffee station, you know, getting coffee together. And um, I would think to myself, oh gosh, I hope they're not Facebook friends because I'm Facebook friends with both of them. And the fact that they can like even talk to each other the way, like, cause it just got so divisive during that political season. Right. Right. Um, right. And I largely as a pastor felt this need to, for the most part, stay out of it or at times address, address it, but never say Trump's name, like address, uh, you know, uh, hostility toward women addressed, addressed like things like that, but not name it. How right? did that go for you? For the most part, well, I think our community was a little more progressive. I definitely had people who push back. I definitely had people who might send an email here or there, but, um, but yeah, I was able to address it, but I did not address it uh, as Trump specific because I didn't feel a calling to, to influence my community on maybe where our vote would be um, best suited or, or influence my community toward a candidate, like to, to at least see a candidate as unqualified, right? I assumed Trump was doing that on his own in certain things. Like I was shocked after the comment he made about McCain that his polls went up after that. Yeah, I was sure. like, I was like, to me, I literally heard that. And I was like, that's the dagger, like everything else up to this point, access Hollywood, whatever else, or, you know, all the other things he had done, and it still didn't, whatever. Yeah. And it didn't. And I was just like, Oh snap, this is different. This is different. Like, um, but I say that just to say, like, at that point I was very, like, I had an opinion, a very real opinion about the situation. Um, but I was cautious to speak prophetically in my community about what I saw coming were mm-hmm. we to go that direction. And I was aware mm-hmm. enough living in central Pennsylvania that I think I, even at that point, a lot of people thought he wouldn't win. And right. I'm like, I grew up in rural Indiana. I'm living in central Pennsylvania. I've lived in Wisconsin. I, I don't think you guys understand how much these whistles he's blowing are like catching people's ears in those communities that are in a lot of ways feeling very left out of the political space, whether they are or aren't, that's how they're feeling. And they get an opportunity potentially to just see this individual as a Molotov cocktail to throw into the whole thing. Totally. And, and, and to a certain sense, I empathize with that if they've lost their factory job because it got sent over to another country or like they've, they've had corporations not working for them. Um, and maybe they're just like, we'll just do this and it'll at least be different, you know? Um, so I saw it very likely that he would get elected. I, did, I, I was, I think I was still shocked when he got elected, but it wasn't a surprise. It was shocked, but it wasn't surprise. I was, I was ready for it. Now, if I was to go back and go through that again with what I know now, or with just who I am now, um, I would tell my community, do not vote for Trump. Do not. You like, would say that explicitly now. Explicitly explicitly i don't care who you vote for but do not vote for that man that man is that man has led in an evil way and i just don't think there's any other way to interpret his leadership now i'm not saying that biden has led in a jesus-centered way like does that make sense like i I, i'm just saying totally i mean i and i write about that in the book too you know yeah yeah i and that's the hard thing is is like 
immediately the inverse happens well and you get this like false equivalency that that's happens. absolutely a false equivalency and, and and so speak to that a little bit what do you think about when you uh, like let's say you share this you know even just the last five minutes of that like message you gave like what happens when someone comes at you with a false equivalency about you know well biden you know you're you're pro-peace but biden supports war but biden <clears throat> hey biden supported police uh in a way that you could argue is like uh, on par with, or even more from the standpoint of like, uh, or, or you could go back to his voting record and see mm -hmm. uh, the war on drugs was largely Biden's, you know, Biden was in a lot of ways, an architect of that. So you look at some of these policies and positions that have really hurt uh, disenfranchised communities. I, I guess, I guess I'm just curious how you, how you work through, the false equivalencies that that you might be met with as you as a religious well, leader try to point well I, I address them in the book right i talk about how joe biden has a sexual assault allegation against him that's reasonable by tara reed so mm -hmm. he has a genuine sexual assault charge so if we're talking about the access hollywood tape with trump we have to interrogate joe biden our inability to actually name joe biden's problems is a product of um, our broken political machine. It's fine for me to admit where Joe Biden has issues. I'm not saying he's a savior. And I'm not even saying that about Bernie Sanders either or any other person, right? Mm -hmm. We all have problems. We don't vote for people because they're perfect. That's not mm -hmm. why we do it. We're, we're asked to make, um, to offer the government wisdom and we pick the best choice. Sometimes there is no good choice, but it really has to be an extreme case for that to be the case, right? Like uh, with Bloomberg and Trump, at least that was my example. Mm -hmm. So, yes, Biden has a sexual assault allegation and a lot of Democrats want to cover that up. And I think that's bullshit because they didn't when it came, when it came to Kavanaugh, they had a lot of guts to fight. And then when it came to this other allegation, they didn't. And at that point, you realize, oh, y'all are just interested in political power. So I'm not going to look to you for moral leadership, even if I vote for you. You are not mm -hmm. my moral leader because Jesus still is. So that's that's how I am oriented. Right. We saw the bullwhips on the border with the Haitian immigrants. We see that Title 42 is still in, in effect. We see that he hasn't dismantled ICE. We see that he's not, Biden is not the anti-Trump. Mm -hmm. I understand that. I understand the limitations of the administration. But the idea that there's any sort of equivalence between the two is, a, is warped thinking that it, that is brought to you by the third way. The mm -hmm. idea that, that that there should be an alternative to these is bizarre because one of them is completely toxic and the other one just isn't that great. You know, you're on a flight, you have a menu and they say to you, what do you want to order? Do you want to order, do you want to eat overcooked chicken breast or do you want to eat a plate of broken glass? I'm going to go with the chicken breast. I don't like chicken breast that much, but that's what I'm going to do. There's no equivalency, right? Yeah. It's like it's like finding a third way between people who live in houses and arsonists, right? Yeah. Like it, it, that doesn't make sense. You know, I joked on Easter. I'm trying to find a third way between the resurrection and the forces of death because our country is so polarized these days, right? Yeah. No, there is a side. There is a way. It's clear. You know, I'm not saying that Biden's perfect, but miss me with the idea that there's a false equivalence here. Like yeah. you don't. The only way you can say that is if you don't feel the pain, the humiliation, the degradation of what it's like to hear Trump say to 
senators, um, members of Congress that have come from other countries to go back where you came from, to hear the pain when he says, when he calls those countries shithole countries. You don't know what that's like, right? You don't know what it's like to have people that look like you not allowed into the country just because they look like you, right? When the Muslim ban happened, I opened the book with this idea, with this, with this story in January of 2017. And there's kids that look like my kids and people that look like me that are being treated less than. If you're going to tell me there's an equivalence between the two, you're completely wrong. Is, is Biden great on immigration? No, he's not as great as I think he should be. And we'll keep pushing him to do that because we're not constrained by this political economy. But let's not say that there's an equivalence there. It is completely inappropriate to do that and yeah. hypocritical above all else. You know, pull out the log in your own eye before you take out the speck in your brothers. Figure mm. out why you're so comfortable voting for a white supremacist. Figure out why. You know, you were talking earlier about how surely <clears throat> the Access Hollywood tra- tape, Trump's discussion, the comments about John McCain would have sunk him. Why didn't it sink him? Why can Trump say, I have supporters on, I could shoot someone on Fifth Avenue and my supporters would still vote for me? Because their commitment is to white supremacy and to whiteness and to their power. This isn't, you know, there is no such thing as a single issue voter that can ignore the racism. Your single issue is the racism. You don't vote for Trump despite the racism. You vote for Trump because of the racism. That's the thing that's happening. So I'm not going to engage with those people. And this book is not for those folks. I want to say it again. It is not for people who get their news from Joe Rogan and Tucker Carlson. If that's who you are, cool. We'll see you on the other side. This book is not trying to convince Trump voters to change their mind. It's trying to engage apathetic and apolitical Christians to engage politically. Mm. It's trying to engage people that don't want to act to act. So yes, Justin, in 2016, when you're preaching against white supremacy, when you're preaching against white supremacy and you're not using Trump's name and there's some genuine fear about doing that. You know, I was not an overtly political preacher when it came to Obama and Romney. And even when it was Hillary and Trump, I wasn't that vocal. I even wrote a blog post about the third way in 2016. Mm-hmm. So we're all growing. We're all changing. It's about as much as my journey as it is somebody else's, as, as it is anybody else's. That space that we have as Christians to avoid political engagement and political commitments commitments is very common. And so, like, don't feel badly if that's the space you occupy. Yeah. All you got to do is get to know the experience of the oppressed, and then maybe you can change. You know, in my book, I talk about there was a black couple that worked for the Mennonites that moved them to engage politically because they knew that voting rights needed to be connected to the work of Anabaptism. Right. When you listen to minorities engage politically, you're changed, you're convicted. And the thing is, if you look at the black church and if you look at churches um, that have engaged in this kind of work, there is no shortage of political engagement. Mm -hmm. There is no shortage of political engagement in the black church In the white church. There's also no shortage of political engagement, but it's just not named as such. Political quietism is its own politics. You aren't any less political just because you don't engage politically, just because you're apolitical. You're simply 
advocating for the status quo. You're advocating for things to stay the same. And that is a political commitment unto itself. So if mm -hmm. you're afraid of making political commitments, if you think you should be apolitical, you already have political commitments. It just so happens that your political commitments are not consequential. Mm -hmm. They don't actually um, advance any anti-oppression work. But you have politics and your politics is basically things are okay right here. Things are okay as they are. Mm. So good. Um, how do you see this affecting the church? Let me give you an example. Mm -hmm. We are the Belong Collective now is very uh, upfront about who we are. We are a Jesus-centered community. Um, we are inclusive. Uh, we are practicing the way of love for the good of all. These are all statements kind of we say, right? Um, but we're fully inclusive of the LGBT community. We're full, like we're, we're really trying to work uh, for justice and trying to change maybe even some of the ways that the church has been participating in systems of injustice, right? Mm -hmm. um, what's really interesting to me is that like growing up in a more attractional model of church, uh, you know what I mean? Like a yeah, more yeah, yeah. non-denominational experience, how the goal was when someone walks in the door to sit down to the way to get them in, to engage is to make them as comfortable as possible, right? Like that's the attractional model, right? And I think to some extent, like we all want our communities to be um, <clears throat> spaces of belonging where people feel like um, some amount of connectedness or love or care or concern when they were to visit our community for the first time, right? The struggle that I, or at least the tension I feel now is that we're a right-wing, you know, very um, opinionated person in that direction, right? Mm -hmm. To walk into our community and to hear me open the gospel and read and share a story of Jesus and connect it to our world today. Like, okay, so my Easter message, yeah, I shared me. I shared about the women who have, I shared, I, every, I had five points and my points were the Easter story reminds us, right? That's, that's what each, each point started with that, right? Oh, that's the, sweet. The, the, the first point was the Easter story reminds us to center the marginalized because women were centered in this story. They were the first to hear that Jesus had been resurrected and they were the first to see Jesus resurrected. And the reason that matters in the first century is because women weren't even allowed to be witnesses at trials. They had no power or authority to be witnesses uh, amid this, like Sanhedrin, for example, right? And so just talking about how Jesus is calling into question that whole system that marginalizes them and doesn't allow their voice. And so I said, one might say, right? Jesus said, believe women. Like, you know, sure, like, sure, sure. Like, Listen to and, women. And, 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 and so I say that, but I'm also like, that's also a little bit of a dog whistle, but it's also a way of connecting our culture to what Jesus might be saying were he here. How do you see that line with also trying to wreck? I don't know. I recognize that people don't change, even myself. I'll, I'll take myself as an example. I don't change overnight. I need the next rung on the ladder. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm, totally. How do our churches remain spaces where we can give people grace to grab the next rung on the ladder and evolve toward a more Jesus centered ethic while also being prophetic 
and speaking truth to power and even using the sermon as one of those ways of doing that. I'm just curious if you've, if you've wrestled with that tension sure, at all sure. and where, where you're at with that. And this is maybe even not even for the podcast. It's for me personally, as I continue to wrestle with it. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus drives a pretty hard bargain in the gospel, right? Mm-hmm. Drop your nets and follow me. They let go of everything to follow Jesus. The call to follow Jesus takes a lot. It's a high cost. The rich young ruler get rid of all your stuff and give it to the poor. Then, then, and then not, not then can you enter the kingdom of heaven, then you can follow me. And then his disciples say, well, who can enter the kingdom of heaven then? Mm. What's possible with what's impossible with mortals is possible with God. That's in Luke 19. What happens in Luke, Luke 18, what happens in Luke 19? Zacchaeus shows you indeed, you can get rid of your stuff. You can give back, you can pay reparations and you can follow Jesus. Right. So, there is an opportunity for everybody. It is not correct to say that if you have political conviction that you're not making room for somebody, you're actually discipling that person. You're actually moving them in a direction. And when we are too politically pluralistic, when we are not changing people and moving them with Jesus and helping them to be disciples, we are doing that on the backs of the oppressed. So having an open and welcoming space for everybody is important. Everybody is invited to the table. Everybody's invited to follow. No one is going to be excluded from following. It will cost some of you more. The question isn't whether God is on your side. The question is, are you on God's side? Are you going to move with Jesus? Mm. When Jesus sends his, the 12 out, to evangelize in the region, to spread the gospel. He says, if you enter someone's house and they don't welcome you and they're not hospitable, dust off your sandals and get out of that town and it'll be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than it will be for that town on that day. So like the judgment of God will come to those who don't want to follow. The price is high. The, The gospels are very serious about this. They don't mince words. Jesus does not create a particularly welcoming environment for people who are hostile to him. He wants people that are moved by the spirit. So pastors and churches look for people who are moved to follow Jesus. Look for people who are looking for you. That's what evangelism is. It's finding people who are finding for your expression of Jesus. And a politically opaque or politically moderate place is not a place that is safe for marginalized people. It's not safe for disabled people. If your church doesn't ask people to mask, disabled and immunocompromised people can't worship with you. If your church is not LGBT inclusive, Queer people cannot worship with you. If your church isn't anti-racist, the BIPOC can't. If your church doesn't affirm women um, in ministry, women can't. Or all these people just have to be less than. Mm. So find those people. Preference their comfort. Preference their support. Organize around them. Don't organize around people that hate them, hoping to convince them to love them. Love these people. Don't center the powerful. Center the marginalized. Mm-hmm. And then the powerful will have a choice. You can come along or you can't, but the choice is yours. Mm-hmm. Christian discipleship, we're moving people in a specific direction. We're moving with Jesus. There's an opportunity for you to engage. No one is excluded. Mm. But yeah, if we I... create too open of an environment and we don't answer questions and we don't make our yes a yes, 
people will be harmed. And I know this from personal experience, Justin, because of Circle of Hope's journey towards moving towards LGBTQIA affirmation. Yeah, talk um, to me about that. Talk to me about that a little bit. In, in May of this year, May of this year, Circle of Hope will. And we're in touch with the denomination that you're no longer a part of about this. <laughs> Um, I'm okay talk, can we talk yeah, about this dude i'm 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 intrigued so go for it we can talk about whatever you want I can, 15... I, I can wait to post this if i need to <laughs> excuse me yeah go ahead on may 15th we have a map which is the direction for the year mm-hmm. for the church that we're going to uh we look like we're going to affirm we're still writing it it's still an open process still three mm-hmm. weeks away um and we are moving towards becoming lgbt inclusive and leaving the brethren in christ Mm. Circle of Hope for a long time had a third way approach towards LGBT issues, you know, mm-hmm. LGBTQIA issues. For a while, we had a policy to not have a policy. For a while, we had vague language that queer people would wonder, what does this mean? How does this work? You know, mm. hey, are you guys LGBT affirming? And a pastor would say, let me take you out to coffee and let's talk about it. Well, what yeah. do you mean? I have to have coffee with you to find out if you're affirming or not. Yeah. Can I be in membership and ministry and, and in marriage? Can I do that? What's the answer? Yes or no? And if you don't have a yes or no, then you're saying no. There is no yes there. So let's just be clear about that. Your church can't be LGBT inclusive and also inclusive and tolerant of people who hate LGBTQIA people who it it doesn't work that way. And so it's it it is better for you to say you're not than it is for you to bait and switch, you know, and I'm going to tell people we're following Jesus. This is what we're doing. And if you're not into that, that's fine. There's other places you can go for fellowship and community. There's other places that you can connect to. If you want a politically moderate church, there's lots. Philadelphia is a big city. There's lots of places for you to go. If you want a conservative church, there's a lot of those too. And if you want a church that's going to radically engage the world and try to change it and act for justice, Circle of Hope is one of them. And we partner with others to do the same. So I don't need to be all things to all people at all times. And no church should aspire to be that way. Decide Mm. what your mission is. Decide what you want to be. Decide who you're going to exclude in order to know who you're going to include. Because you can't have it every way. You can't have everybody. And if you try to make a moderate place that is inclusive of everybody, invariably, you will harm the oppressed. Mm. If you center the oppressed and allow their voices to be elevated, now then, then we're in a totally different discussion. You know, Circle of Hope has been on a journey to take a side, and, and we finally have done that. Mm-hmm. You know, this book has a specific purpose in terms of helping Christians engage politically. That's the point of my book. The bigger movement that we're talking about in the church is much greater than what I wrote in Jesus Takes Aside, mm-hmm. right? For churches to be actively on the side of the marginalized, this is a bigger idea that I'm glad Circle of Hope is engaging in and that I have a voice in that, but it's a movemental thing that's happening in our community where we're no longer trying to cater to every side because we know that comes at the expense of the marginalized. So create mm-hmm. hospitality in your churches for everybody. Mm-hmm. Everybody's welcome. Yeah. But some people are going to have to make more sacrifices than others. The cost is greater for others. It's not mm-hmm. equal. Jesus meets you right where you're at. You know, yeah. To the lowly, they have a place in the kingdom of heaven. Mm. And if you cause them to stumble, you'll suffer a consequence. To the wealthy, to the rich, to the powerful, you also have a place. You're just going to have to let go of your stuff. You know, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 12, we need to elevate the lowly. We need to elevate the parts of the body that are less honorable than others in order to unite the body. 
in order to unite the body we elevate the voices mm. the the the, the uh, minoritarian voices the oppressed voices that's how we do it um yeah. and then the body is united if you think your body is united but it's politically pluralistic you're oppressing people that's yeah. what's happening and you're 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 tolerating their oppression wow so that's going to be a big challenge probably for y'all coming in mid-may um how are you working through that? Is that is that a decision you guys are making to disengage from the denomination or is that a decision that was made for you? Uh, I know in my situation, it was a decision made for me. I tried as long as I could to champion change within the denomination. Our, our denomination was clear. If you're LGBT affirming, we will take your licenses. Mm -hmm. Okay. So that's clearly what's happening. And then we're acting in accordance that way. Okay. You know, our queer people don't want to be a part of a denomination that is not affirming. Yeah. But at the same time, our denomination doesn't want affirming affirming churches in it. Yeah. So both things are true. You know, we are deciding, but they're also deciding for us. And because they're not allowing for any space for us, they're forcing our hand. That's what's happening. And so that's disappointing when you're when your commitments, when your commitments to your prejudices are greater than your commitments to your brothers and sisters. It's disappointing when your political commitments, now here, now we're getting into something, when your political commitments are more self-interested than they are others-centered. That's mm. disappointing, you know? And, 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 it will, and what I'm writing about is allowing your political convictions to be informed by the most affected. Yeah, man. Well, I, I know how challenging that path was for myself and um, my... Uh, my prayers are with you guys, all of you, um, as you journey through that as pastors. I know one thing I will say is uh, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't change anything. You know, I, I think uh, going through that with the conviction that I did, and I'm sure you feel the same going through it with the conviction that you have. Um, I think being an ally of the LGBT community in that way has opened up a ton of doors for me mm -hmm. in conversations with people. Uh, even just <laughs> last week, someone came out to me that hasn't come out to anybody um, mm. because they see me as a safe person. And I think as you know, someone who holds the title pastor, that's a pretty rare thing to hold that space with somebody of trust. Um, totally. And so uh, while there will be consequences, I'm sure that will be challenging to that transition. Um, and there were many for me, but, um, I still think the, you know, um, the reality of totally. it was 100% like my conscience is intact. Let's put it that way. Exactly. And, I, and I, and I couldn't not have that, you know? Um, yeah. I mean, we're going to ask for everything we want, but the truth is that being allies and being connected to LGBTQIA people is the most important thing. What good is it to gain the whole world, but forfeit your soul? Yeah. You know, that's what Jesus says. And if you're, if you want to gain the whole world, then don't follow Jesus. You know, if you can't let go of your power, don't follow Jesus. If you can't self empty like Jesus did considering uh, equality with the father, not something to be achieved, then yeah. you can't do it. Jesus is emptying himself to engage mm -hmm. with us. That's what we should do too. So this Jesus takes a side has been a journey for you too. It's not something that you've always believed, or at least the, in the, in the, with the passion and commitment you have now, not necessarily just around this issue, but sure. I, I also think our world has become, you know, you had said just a little bit ago about 
kind of the 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 Romney Obama. It, it was very easy to have a third way theology during that time because hey, whichever like you said, whichever candidate gets in, it's really in a lot of ways inconsequential. They're pretty similar candidates in right. a lot of ways. But um, now we 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 do live in a world where like we could be seeing another Trump presidency in the future. We could be seeing or even a more radical uh, person get centered uh, that that might um, you know run. Totally. Uh, I think, yeah, next time we'll likely get a very polite, more radical version of Trump, which yeah. will, which will, which will really throw our political um, economy into a fit and into a fizzy. It'll be a lot different. Yeah. Do you, do you think um, like, do you, I, I, I've got this vision for churches mobilizing, you know, growing up churches mobilized to feed the homeless, to, um, you know, every missions trips and things like that, just all the different ways that we might actually do things outside of church walls. Right. Yeah. I'm kind of seeing more and more and not that I'm against feeding the homeless, <laughs> just to be clear, but I, I do sense that like churches are going to, for example, our church has uh, sponsored and led a pride event in Hershey. Okay. Uh, our church has our church sponsored and paid for the first ever Black Lives Matter rally in Hummelstown and 600 some people showed up That's and awesome. we worked and we worked to That's awesome. to actually create a petition to get police reform in Hummelstown and many of those things that we wanted reform on actually happened. So like but our church was central to to those things. Now we didn't center ourselves. We 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 allowed other leaders in to really be the voices of it, but we paid for everything, the park permits, the generator, the sound system, the, we tried to, in essence, take away all the restrictions um, from that and then mobilize our community to come out, show up, invite That's your awesome. friends, right? Um, do you anticipate the church of the future as things continue to get more polarizing is going to be almost because I, when I look back at the civil rights era, that's kind of what we saw. We saw churches being used to mobilize, black churches being used to mobilize in a way that they actually, their, their missions trips were protests, right? That's what they were doing outside of their churches. Totally, they were protesting. Totally. Um, do you think that's what, like, as you vision forward the next 10 years of the church, that you're going to see churches like yours and maybe the Belong Collective doing more of that mobilization? I hope work? so. I hope more churches make the choices, the side of the marginalized, the side of the oppressed. I don't think most will. I think mm -hmm. it'll be the same. In the civil rights, a lot of churches engaged in civil rights work, but a lot didn't. And the people that stood in the way the most were Christians. The mm -hmm. people that are standing in the way of us now are white evangelicals. There's no question about that. Trump mm -hmm. wins because of white evangelicals. And people are even converting to white evangelicalism because of their white supremacy. So I hope churches do it. I am not hopeful that the church at large will. And I don't think it ever did. You know, I'm an Anabaptist. You know, we've always been radically reforming. We've always been against the way of the world. And so the state church is the one. The state church is the one that's not only uh, very far right and very racist and very homophobic and very sexist, very ableist. It's also the people that can't take a side. If you think you're different than the churches that oppose civil rights because you are finding a third way, you're not. Mm. You're, you, you are their allies. You are helping them along. You are saying that their evil is not material enough for you to take a stand on. So don't find any comfort in your inability to make a political commitment and think you're any better than the people that don't take a side. 
you know, in Dante's Inferno, the fires of hell burn hottest for the people that couldn't decide what to do, that couldn't make a decision. So make your decision. You know, that's what churches should be doing. Don't mince words. Make it clear where you are. Help people along. Mm. Don't so- yeah, go ahead. I was just going to say, along the lines with what you just said, Martin Luther King Jr.'s letter from a Birmingham jail. It's exactly. like everyone should read that because the people he calls into question are white moderates. And the white moderates, that's it's right. Not, it's not, he's, he literally says, it's not the, uh, the, the Ku Klux Klan that I'm feeling as much resistance from as the people who I thought would be on our side, who are just this like neutral, not coming, you know, not, not, so manipulated is what it really comes down to. When you read that letter, you can tell this large swath of people that call themselves Christians have been manipulated toward this like false idea of um, peace, you know? Um, and I, I, I read that every year uh, at least once, maybe twice even. Yeah. Just yeah. Because yeah. It's a great it's, letter. It's such a reminder for the situations we're in today. It's very, it's very connected. If you haven't read that, you should totally read that. Okay, my last point, and yeah. I want to get your thoughts on this. After Trump was elected and we found out that white evangelicals largely put him in there, that like if it wasn't for the support from white evangelicals and churches, you know, like in that way, it, it would have been very hard for him to win the way he won. Um, as I thought more about that, and this was probably a, a revelation that came within the year after his first um, year in office. Do you think Trump is, do you think the reason Trump maybe got elected is because Trump is the way we've been taught to see God, that there's maybe even a theological issue here that like God is powerful, lightning bolt in the sky, strikes you down. If you step out of line, says what he says, what he means, like this, like macho version of God. And not even that Trump is that, but that people have attached that to him, because I do think in some ways the leaders we vote for when it comes to, you know, faith communities is largely the, the God we've chosen to kind of see where I I don't, does that make sense? I don't know if you're, I don't know if you're tracking with me, but I don't, have you given any thought to that? And what are your thoughts on that? I know this isn't necessarily about the book, but I'm just curious if you see any connection theologically as a pastor, like the study of God is what I mean by theology, like the way we study and understand God impacts the way we see an individual. If we see them as powerful as successful, whatever. And then we ascribe a godliness to that or uh, a prosperity gospel even could, could sure, fall sure. into this. Like he must be godly because he's got money. He's pre- God's been blessing him with prosperity. There's just a lot of different windows that I felt even theologically, we've done some bad, we've done a bad job theologically of training our communities to where they could even see somebody like this and almost see it as a godly thing. Whereas like, as I look at God, I look at someone who leads with self-sacrificial love and a candidate like that would be <laughs> crucified. <laughs> well, yeah, I totally agree with you. You know, I think it's important that we know what our God image is and that we're aware of it mm-hmm. and that we don't try to vote for people who fit into our God image. I think that you're right that evangelicals do that. And I want to say this is well beyond my pay grade. I haven't studied the history to know well enough if this is the case. But if you want a resource yeah. that's going to help you understand this, I really do recommend Jesus and John Wayne by Kristen oh, yes. Dumay. That is she, a great book. She, she makes the argument you're making. Yes. She says yep. this is exactly why they voted for Trump. They'll say, you know, I'm not voting for a pastor. I'm voting for a president. But they like it. 
They like the attitude. They like the racism. They like the brashness. It's not a detracting point. It's a selling point. Mm. So I do think that that's the case. I do think they see God that way. And I think it's bad theology. So I think that if you, I mean, in, in, in defense of the Christian anarchists and, in, and uh, of, the, of those who don't want to participate, if you want to vote for somebody that's like Jesus, you probably won't in the American political system. That isn't a reason not to vote, but we vote because of how Jesus has convicted us, not because we see Jesus necessarily in the candidates. You know, mm-hmm. we're, we're uh, doing the best we can with what we've got. We're not being idealistic. We're just being practical. But don't allow that practicality to meet, to to numb your idealism. Still have hope. Still have prophetic imagination. Hope for a new world and engage practically in the ways that you can now. So my yeah. advice for people is to engage in local politics and, and, and engage in um, state politics, national politics as much as you can. Simplify it. Vote regularly. Try to participate in as practical of a way as you can while also allowing the voices of the marginalized, the voices of contextual theologians, of liberation theologians to inform how you participate and to not make you cynical about what is possible in the world. Awesome. Well, Johnny, thank you so much. Uh, Jesus Takes a Side comes out May 31st, 2022. You can pre-order it wherever you pre-order books. That's right. I've seen it everywhere. Um, can, do you want to tell people how they can follow you or some things that you're doing yeah, that sure. they can get connected to? Circle of Hope has a great podcast that I listen to regularly. Would encourage you to check that out, but tell them other ways they can yeah, get connected. Yeah, check out Resist and Restore. We're starting yeah. our new season really soon. Um, we got some cool guests coming up. It's exciting. Um, you can follow me on Instagram and Twitter at Johnny Rashid. I'm also at johnnyrashid.com where I blog once a week. And if you like home cooking, follow me at instagram.com slash foodpastor. That's what? my. Uh, that's one of the hobbies that I have. I like sharing the food that I make, so that's something that you can do as well. How do I not know this? I there you go, Justin. That. Now uh, you know. Um, <laughs> I'm still trying to write, and I have an article coming out on Earth and Altar about how Matthew 18 has been weaponized against marginalized people, and so so that's that's another place with Anabaptists where we see a, a flaw, in my opinion, in their theology and how it has protected abusers before. So. Look out for that. I'll send, I'll, I'll be posting it when it comes out. So that's yeah. something that's coming out for me. Well, Johnny, thanks so much. Uh, it was great having you and great to have this conversation. I really appreciate it. Thanks a lot, Justin. You just finished another episode of Beyond Boundaries. Thanks so much for tuning in. A huge thank you to Johnny Rashid for being on today. Please go and pre-order his book, Jesus Takes a Side. Where, wherever you get books, go pre-order it. Go follow him. Even follow his Instagram food <laughs> link that he gave. That's that's great. Uh, I actually just followed that, and I'm looking forward to seeing all the things he shares there. Uh, consider rating, reviewing, and sharing the podcast. Finally, consider donating to my Patreon or Venmo. It helps cover the costs of hosting hosting this podcast in all the places that you enjoy listening to it. Uh, Any amount helps and nothing's too small. All the links are in the description of this podcast episode. May you go and live a life that is beyond boundaries, giving others love, exploring new ideas and championing belonging.